Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, well, welcome everyone to our uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, As most of you know, unless you're visiting, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters in the book of Matthew. Uh, You can read it in about probably 15 or 20 minutes. Um, It'll probably take us, uh, I guess, about six months to to go through this. Now, we just started it uh, three weeks ago, so tonight is our third lesson. Uh, We make it to verse number four, chapter five, and the title of our lesson tonight is Happy Are the Sad. Happy are the sad. I want to start here tonight. Um, I was doing a little bit of reading this last week, and I ran across an article. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to read this without and actually look at y'all. I may have to just look down. Uh, But I read an article. This article was written in a magazine called Housekeeping Monthly, uh, May the 13th of 1955. And I grabbed a little screen grab there so you could see it. And it was entitled... How to Be a Good Wife. And so I read that article, so you don't have to. And uh, I, wrote a few, uh, I wrote a few things down, so I just want to uh, read a few quotes from that article. Again, Housekeeping Monthly, May of 1955. This is some things that it says. Have dinner ready. <laughs> Plan ahead even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair. Be happy to see him. Greet him with a warm smile. Show sincerity in your desire to please Him. Don't greet Him with complaints and problems. Listen to Him. (laughs) Listen to Him. You may have a dozen important things to tell Him, but now's not the time. (laughs) Let Him talk first. Remember, His topics of conversation. (laughs) Oh, Lord. His topics of conversation are far more important than yours. Arrange his pillow. Offer to take off his shoes. Speak in a low, soothing, and pleasant voice. Let me just read that part again. Speak in a low, soothing, and pleasant voice. Your goal is to try to make your home a place of peace, order, and tranquility where your husband can renew himself in body and spirit. Now... Let me tell you a couple things about that article. I'm not, it didn't say who wrote it, but I'm 100% sure it was probably a man. Would you, would you agree with that? Also, I wasn't alive in 1955. I'm not sure if that was the ideal, but what I can be sure of is there weren't many women in 1955 living up to that ideal. I can pretty much tell you that. So the question is, why did I bring all that up? Well, does that not almost sound ridiculous to our modern ears? 
doesn't it? I mean, even as we read it, we, we, we're not really offended about, by it anymore because it just sounds laughable. It's, it's ridiculous. It almost sounds absurd. Now, that's, that's, I wanted to point that out, because he, and here's why I bring this up. As, as ridiculous as that sounds, those quotes sound to a modern woman, I'm afraid that this sounds just as ridiculous to the modern church. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, I'm not, as I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I've been studying and reading ahead, I, I've realized that we've got a problem. And that a lot of us, we read these things and say, well, you know, that was the way it was back then. That was the way they needed to be in the first century or the second century. But it, everything's different that now. We're, we're a different church. We're, no, we're not. But it almost sounds laughable. It almost sounds ridiculous. It almost sounds absurd. And I can tell you, for, it certainly sounds that way to the world. In Luke 6.25, Jesus says the same thing, but puts it another way. He says this, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You see, this, this idea that, that Jesus is teaching here is the exact opposite of the philosophy of the world. You see, the opposite of mourning and grieving is laughing and rejoicing. And that is exactly what we see in the world every single day. Instead of mourning over sin, they rejoice in it. They, they laugh about it. They share stories about it in the locker room. They, they, they share stories around the water cooler. They enjoy being entertained by sin. They even celebrate it with parades in the street, don't they? See, that's, the, that's the, the idea of the world, is let's just have a party. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just, let's just laugh it up and, and enjoy ourselves and, and live our best life now. And into this comes Jesus, and he says, For those who laugh now, you will mourn and weep later. Now listen, please don't get me wrong here tonight. There is absolutely nothing wrong with laughter. We started out tonight by laughing, and that is perfectly fine. The Bible tells us that laughter does us good like a medicine. And there's certainly a time for it. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 4 says this, For everything there's a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. So certainly there's time for rejoicing, and laughter, and dancing, and all of those things. But what I'm afraid of is the modern church has lost the ability to discern the times. In fact, many times I'm afraid it's hard to tell uh, non-believers from Christians. We're, we're watching the same things. We're laughing at the same things. We're enjoying the same things. In many cases, we're laughing when we should be mourning. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verses 12 to 13, it says this, In that day... The Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And what did he get? Joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, those people of Israel were in a time where they should have been mourning and grieving, and instead they were eating and drinking just like there's no eternity, like there's no tomorrow. They couldn't discern the times. They didn't discern the seasons. And into this, the modern church walks Jesus with this incredible verse. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Now, last week, I, 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 I completely butchered it. I was trying to say something, and I used the word enigma, and I just, like I said, I completely butchered it. I didn't mean to use the word enigma. There are enigmas in the Bible. The word I meant to use was a paradox. Now, I don't know if you know what a paradox is, but a paradox is a statement that seems to contradict itself, but it turns out it's actually true. For example, we might say, uh, somebody say, well, how do, how do I get to a certain place? And somebody may say, well, you got to go up to go down, Right? Now that sounds, well, that makes no sense at all. Why would you go up to go down? But there are certain geographical locations in the country, and if you want to go down, you got to first go up, right? So it seems contradictory, but it's not. The Bible is full of paradoxes. I'll give you a few. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's a paradox. Uh, Matthew 10, 39, Jesus said this, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's a paradox. In Matthew 20, 16, Jesus said this, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. These seem these seems like they're statements that are contradictory, but they're not. They actually turn out to be truths. And this is, this is the life that Jesus is describing on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a, a life of, of seeming paradoxes. It's a life of, of contrast. It's a life of, of opposites sometime. Let me give you a few more. Jesus, for example, comes along and said, the world says, blessed are the strong. You know, if you're in the world and you look like you're weak and poor, man, everybody looks down on you and the world says, man, you can do this thing. You're, you're great. You're strong. You're you know, and so the, the world says, blessed are the strong in spirit, the tough in spirit. And Jesus says, no, no, it's the opposite is true. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt when it comes to the things of God. The world says, blessed are those who laugh. And Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not like that at all. Blessed are those who mourn. Or, for example, the world comes along and says, get wealth. Store up for yourself uh, your riches on earth, man. Get all you can. Live, your, live it up now. Live your best life now. And Jesus comes along and says, no, don't do that. Store up for yourself riches in heaven. Or as I just said, the world says, live your best life now. And Jesus comes along and says, this world's not your home. Right? It's, it's the exact opposite. Now, the question is why? Why is the Christian life a life of opposites, a life of paradox, a life of of contrast. Well, the reason is, is because you and I as Christians live in two kingdoms at the same time. In John 17, this is what's called the priestly prayer when Jesus prays for his disciples and, and in extension, he's praying for you and I. This is what he said. He's talking to the Father and he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So as Christians, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, right? So we literally reside in two kingdoms. We're here in this kingdom of the earth, of the world, but at the same time, we belong to the kingdom of God. So in the kingdom of the world, we can be weak, and in the kingdom of God, we can be strong. In the kingdom of the world, we can be poor. And in the kingdom of, of, of God, we own everything. 
In the kingdom of the world, this body is dying. In the kingdom of God, I've already got eternal life. In this kingdom, I can be last, but in His kingdom, I will be, I'll be first. So that's, that's this dichotomy that goes on with us, right? It's this idea that the Christian abides in this physical world, but yet we live our spiritual lives by the standards of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom, whether you know it, is not ruled by the laws of this earth. It's not beholding to the, to the, to the statutes and the laws and the rules of, of this world. It, it's, it's completely different in so many ways. And so as Christians, we have to keep ourselves pure. I'm going to give you three things very quickly that we have to do. Number one, we have to keep the church pure. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, Paul says this, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. For what have I to do, Paul says, with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So one thing we have to do as a church, River of Life, or any other church is we have to keep it pure. We cannot allow blatant sin to go unanswered in the members of the, of the body. So we keep the church pure. The second thing we do is we keep our relationships pure. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Again, this is Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So we're to keep the church pure. We're also to keep our relationships pure. And then finally, of course, we are to keep ourselves pure. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the world. John says in 1 John 2, 15, don't love the world or the things of the world. James 1, 20, uh, 121 says, keep yourself unspotted or unstained from the world. Three different men, three different books, all telling us, keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. Make sure you, you watch over yourself and keep yourself pure. So you and I as Christians, we're in this world, right? We're living in this world. Physically, we, we have jobs and we, we go to work and, we, and we, you know, we mow our yards and we have children and we live our lives. We're doing all these things that everybody else is doing. Yet the Bible tells us don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the church be conformed. Don't let your relationships be conformed. And certainly don't let yourself be conformed to the world. Instead, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. Listen, everybody's doing it has nothing to do with whether it's right or wrong. Okay, just everybody's doing it has nothing at all to do with whether something's right or wrong. It has nothing to do with that. We always got to remember there is a way that seems right to a man. And the end of that is death. So when the world is saying live your best life now and get rich now and, and laughter is the best medicine and all these, you know, just focus on these things. You got to remember there's a way that seems right to a man. And the end of that is death. We have to listen to God. We have to listen to his word. And into this comes Matthew 5, 4. So let's come back to our verse. It's a short, short verse. It says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word blessed means what? It means happy. In the Greek, it just means happy. So basically what Jesus is saying is happy are the sad. 
happy are the sad. Now, on its face, that seems illogical, right? In, in fact, think about our life. Wouldn't you say most people think that the definition of happiness is the avoidance of grief and the avoidance of pain and the avoidance of sorrow? Isn't that how most people live their life? That's the idea. In fact, listen to what David says in Psalms 55, 4 through 8. My heart is in anguish within me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove and I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. David here in this psalm is echoing the cry of probably every fallen human being. And that is a cry for freedom. If I could just get away from this pain if I could just get away from this sorrow, if I could just fly away and be free from all of this earthly pain and sorrow. That's how most people go through life. That's how most people think of happiness. Now, in the Greek language, there are nine different words for grief or mourning. Nine different words. Now, I'm not going to do a, a word study. I'm not going to tell you what each one of those means. Let's just say this. If nothing else, having nine different words to describe something is a pretty good indication that it's a big deal in the human life, right? In fact, the whole story, if you go back through, we live in a generation with our technology and air conditioning and comfort. And, you know, we're all sitting on our phones today watching the track of the storm. I mean... You know, 100 years ago, you just looked out and, I mean, it's on top of you. You didn't know it was coming, right? I mean, we have all these benefits and everything. But you go back and look through history, the, really the whole story of mankind is one of death and pain and suffering and, and sorrow. And so what we've done, I think, in our modern life is we've built a system. And this system that we've built is really around the avoidance of grief and the avoidance of pain and sorrow. I mean, just think about it. The people that continuously chase pleasure, continuously chase entertainment, right? I mean, it, we're all, I mean, you can't hardly go anywhere and not somebody's on their phone, right? The, the idea that you might have to sit there and think and contemplate and meditate, you almost can't do it no more. I gotta be. I gotta be entertained. I gotta keep my brain moving. I gotta be. I gotta keep flipping that phone. The money we chase, the the things that that, that money buys, the the energy we expend, the time we expend on all of that. I just think a lot of it is an ex, is an expression of our desire to avoid suffering, to avoid pain, to avoid grief and mourning, to to avoid thinking about bigger issues in our life. And here comes Jesus into this culture that's built completely around the avoidance of being sad. And Jesus comes in here and says, oh, I got something to say. You want to really be happy? You got to first be sad. Now, what's he talking about? Well, one thing you got to understand about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is, is really unfolding a different way of life, a completely new approach to, to life. Now, you see, if I, if I got up here tonight and, and I went to Winn-Dixie and let's say I could get 100 people in Winn-Dixie and I started talking about uh, happy or the sad, I might hear a comment like this. Somebody might say to me, well, you know what, Derek, in general, that's true. Everybody knows, uh, for example, a good cry makes you feel better, right? 
Everybody knows that if you go through suffering or if you go through pain, it, it makes you stronger, right? We have sayings, right? What, it, what don't kill you makes you stronger. I heard one saying somewhere one time about uh, all sunshine and no rain makes a desert. So we've got these little pithy sayings that we say. We even write poems about it. I, I read one that I liked one time. I read it said this, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. That's true, right? That's a, that's a good sentiment. It, it does, going through pain and suffering does make you stronger. You do think about things and learn things through that that you would never learn in the good times. But folks, listen to me. That type of mourning and sorrow is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the pains of life. He's not talking about the sorrows of life. He's not talking about anything like that that has to do with the world. What he's talking about is godly sorrow. And godly sorrow is a completely different thing. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul writes this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. There's the, there's the two things right here. Listen to me. You can go home tonight and you can cry your eyes out over your disappointments and your failures and your, 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 your mistakes and your loneliness and your lost loves. And you can, you can weep and moan and cry and grieve and all that. And in the end, you're going to die and none of that made any difference. Worldly sorrow leads to death. It, there's, there's nothing in it. You just felt bad for a whole lot of nothing. But there is a sorrow, there's a mourning, there's a grief that leads to life. And that is a godly sorrow. It's what Paul just said. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. You see, the sorrow, the mourning, the grieving that Jesus is talking about is a sorrow over sin. That's the issue that he's concerned with. So if you go back and read that verse, when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, that's what he's talking about. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed, blessed are those who, are, who grieve or sad over their sin. I, I mentioned earlier that there are nine Greek words that, for, for different types of grief. The one that Jesus uses here is the strongest one of all. It's talking about the strongest type of grief you can have. It's the word used in Genesis 37, 34. When it says Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. It's the same word that's used in the New Testament in Mark 16.10. When it says Mary went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. The word that Jesus uses here is, is this idea that you've lost someone that you love dearly. That is the strongest type of grief that there can possibly be. And this is the word that Jesus uses. Bless are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Now, when I started last week, you, you guys know we're going through the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are, those, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who show mercy. And you remember what I told you last week? These are all defining the character of a Christian. Jesus deals with character before he gets to the conduct. 
So all of these things are describing what a Christian in the kingdom of God should look like. And one of the characteristics of salvation, one of the characteristics of a true believer is you mourn over sin. You mourn, you grieve over sin. Let me say it this way. If our profession of Christ didn't change your relationship to sin, then your profession of Christ more than likely has not changed your eternal destiny. Let me say that one more time. If you come down an aisle and you pray to receive Christ and, and that does not change your relationship to sin, then more than likely it didn't change nothing. It didn't change nothing. It certainly has not changed your eternal destiny. Now I want to talk a little bit about the second half of the verse. Jesus said this, Blessed are those who mourn, happy are the sad. Happy are those who grieve over their sin because... This is the reason you're happy. This is the reason you're blessed. Because they shall be comforted. Understand that the happiness doesn't come in the morning over sin. Happiness comes in God's response to your morning. That's why you're happy. Listen to Psalms 32, 1 through 5. This is uh, David. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, David said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I, but I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me. You forgave me. See, if, I don't know how many of you have done this, but if you keep your sin bottled up and watch what happens. Keep your sin bottled up and it will eat you like a cancer. It will eat you like a cancer. You don't mourn over it. You don't grieve over it. You never get to comfort. You never get to forgiveness. You, you, just, you just hide your guilt and it absolutely eats you up. That's why the sorrow of the world leads nowhere. You can be sorry I made those mistakes. You can be sorry I made those decisions. But it, it gets you nowhere. The only sorrow that leads to life is turning to the Lord and asking Him for forgiveness. And when you do that, you are comforted. Confess it to God and experience the joy and the freedom that comes with that. In fact, that same psalm at the very end, Psalms 32, 10-11, uh, David said this, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, shout for joy in the upright in heart. See how he went from being heavy and, and, and eaten up inside to being shout for joy. Why? Because he repented. He turned to the Lord and he asked for forgiveness and he received comfort. You see, this is the paradox of the Christian life. Happy are the sad. You want to be happy. You really want to be happy. You have to start with being sad. In fact, let me, let me make three points and then I'm going to close. The first one is this. This mourning that we have has to be continual. It's not something you do at conversion. You know, we all at some point when we were converted, we were sorry about our sin, right? I mean, I remember I was I, I being sorry about my sin, but I still had a lot of sins to go, Right? <laughs> I was just sorry about the ones I knew about. I, I still had a lot in, 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 my, you know, in my future. 
See, the fact is, this mourning and grieving over your sin has to be continual. Why? Because we continue to sin. Listen to 1 John 1, 7 through 9. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we walk through life and that sin comes in again, we got the same choice all over again. Do we hide it? Do we push it down? Do we suppress it? Do we cover it up? Or do we turn and expose it to God and ask His forgiveness and receive comfort? Second thing I want to make a point about is the relationship between mourning and joy. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his book, a real sense of sin must come before there can be a true joy of salvation. How many of you would be honest and you read the scriptures about joy? You know, uh, joy comes in the morning and the joy of the Lord is our... You read those and yet you feel like you come up a little short. I mean, if I, I won't make you raise your hand, but how many of you here really feel like you've got real, unabated, true joy? If the answer is you don't, then it very well could be that you also don't have a real sense of your sin. Are you with me? It's almost like that. There's a there's a ratio. The more you realize how sinful you are, the, the more you realize who you really are, and you you confess that and get it before God. The, the joy on the other side of that is incredible. But maybe too many many of us were spending our lives trying to find joy, but we failed to recognize that before we can get that, there has to be a mourning and a grieving, and a recognition of our sin. There's a lot of people out there that want to be happy. Okay, I, I, I guarantee you, as I said, I go to Winn-Dixie, if I took a poll of 100 people and said, how many of you want to be happy? I guarantee you all 100 of them would say, yeah, but how many of them want to talk about sin? How many of them want to recognize their sin? How many, they, see, they want joy, they want happiness, but they want it apart from uh, confessing of sin. Folks, that's impossible. That's impossible according to Jesus. There is a direct relationship between happiness and joy and, and, and the confession and mourning and grieving over sin. So those who want to be truly happy, according to Jesus, it's the opposite of what the world says. You want to truly be happy, you start by being sad. You start by mourning. You start by grieving over your sin. I want to close with a, uh, a, 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 a chapter or, or a section out of the book of Ezekiel. I want you to listen to this. This is Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel says this, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them there was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. So let me stop right there. Ezekiel is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. You remember King, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes against the city and he destroys it. I mean, just wipes it out and takes the whole, basically the whole population to Babylon as slaves. And Ezekiel was, uh, as far as we know, was living in Babylon at that time when he was prophesying. So he's explaining what happened when the city was destroyed. 
And he said, what I saw was God called six men, and they, he called them executioners, each with a, a destroying weapon in his hand. But there was a seventh man, and that man was a man clothed in linen, and he had a writing case to make a mark. Now watch what he says. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem. Now watch. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. He said, go through the city and find people who are mourning over sin. Find people who are sad about sin. Find people who are grieving over sin and put a mark on their foreheads. And then he says this, And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall sow no pity. Touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Now in the natural... If you just looked at this from the natural, King Nebuchadnezzar is coming against Israel or, or, or Judah with this huge army. And he's destroying and killing and slaughtering and enslaving. There are people being judged. But there were those in the city who mourned over their sin. And God put a mark on them and he saved them. Okay? Now here's what I'm bringing up. In the same way today on this earth at River of Life and in Walcala County... There are a group of people who are members of God's kingdom. And they are marked by a character trait. And that character trait is that they grieve over their sin. That's the character trait of a Christian. True believers, born again believers, grieve over sin. They can't just let sin come into their life and laugh about it. There's a time to laugh. But they understand that there's a time to mourn. And that's the mark, by the way. That's the mark of a believer, that this character trait, if you will, that, uh, that they mourn over their sin. And God sets those men and women apart, and He protects them from His wrath. They're members of His kingdom now, in part, because wherever Jesus is working, that's where His kingdom is. But one day, folks, we will inherit it fully. Three weeks ago... I opened up the Sermon on the Mount by asking a question. And I told you, throughout this uh, study, I'm going to ask this question over and over and over again. Will you and I take the plain teaching of Jesus Christ seriously? Does anybody have any trouble with this verse, understanding what it means? It's pretty simple, ain't it? <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. It's as simple as it gets. So here's the question I have. Are you a mourner? Are you a mourner? Again, nobody wants you walking around 24 hours a day in sackcloth and ash. That's what we're talking about, right? It's knowing the seasons. It's knowing the time in your life. There's a time for rejoicing and knowing that there's a time for mourning. Are you a mourner? Or are you like the, the world just going through your daily life and no matter what happens... You're just, you know, you don't turn to God. You're not taking it to Him. You're not grieving and mourning over the things that are wrong in your life. You just accept it. And let me say this. You know, a lot of us as Christians, we might say, well, you know, Derek, I don't, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't, I don't cuss. I don't go with women that do those things. You know, I got all those things down, right? 
But you see, the Holy Spirit, those things are behind you, but He'll point out you're a gossip. He'll point out everything in your life. And every time He points it out, you're a gossip, or you're, you're, you're jealous, or you're, you're a, a coveter, or you're this or that. The Christian grieves over that. When the Holy Spirit brings it up, the, the, the natural reaction of a Christian is to grieve over that in their life, is to mourn it, to try to do something about it, to get turned to God and get forgiveness of that, to get in the Scripture and, and begin to read and study. Are you a mourner? You see, blessed are the mourners, happy are the mourners, happy are the sad, because there's coming a time when you'll find comfort. Not only in this life, by the way, it doesn't, have, it doesn't wait until the next life. The next life's going to be great. No more pain, no more sorrows, no more tears. All that stuff's gone. But right here and now, God will comfort you in so many ways if you are a mourner. I'm going to, uh, I tried to finish up just a hair early tonight. I'd usually try to have you out of here by 745, but I want to, I'm going to open up the altars tonight. I think that, you know, Brother Henry told me one time that there are cert certain lessons and certain sermons where you need to respond. Does that make sense? Remember what the, Jesus said, the, the, the sower goes out to sow, and there are those that hear the word, and then the enemy comes and steals it away. I think there's certain sermons that if it speaks to you, you have to respond then. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to open the, the altar. If you have got sin in your life that's not being dealt with, then tonight is an opportunity to mourn. Tonight is an opportunity to grieve. So if you will, just I'm just going to we're not going to make any big deal out of it. But if you got some things you need to pray about, uh, I'll give you a few minutes to come to the altar and then um, I will close in prayer. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200. Or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.